Chapter 15 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 The Five Million Acre Bill. A letter of Miss Dix, already quoted in Chapter 13, will be recalled, in which, in an hour of weariness, she wrote, I think after this year, I shall certainly not suffer myself to engage in any legislative affairs for a year. I can conceive the state of mind which this induces to be like nothing save the influences of the gambling table or any games of chance on such unlooked-for and often trivial balances do the issues depend." the stakes for which she had now for years been playing were indeed pecuniarily enormous involving in the case of each separate asylum from fifty to two hundred thousand dollars at the start not to speak of the further appropriations for permanent expenses and for enlargement that must inevitably ensue they were stakes moreover on the winning or losing of which hung the devout thanksgiving of a merciful heart at relief, now close at hand for cruel shapes of human misery, or the silent torture that the old sad story must go on unchanged. In comparison, however, with the far vaster stake she was now about to play for, no longer in the halls of state legislative assemblies, but on the arena of the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States, these previous ventures involved but trivial issues. To set the subject here to be entered on in a clear light, it will be necessary to go back several years in the story of Mystics's career. So manifold were the operations she was in the habit of carrying on, at the same time, that there is no other feasible way but to set apart certain of them and treat them as distinct episodes. Already, at as early a date as 1848, had she memorialized Congress for a grant of five million acres of the public domain the proceeds of the sale of which were to be set apart as a perpetual fund for the care of the indigent insane. The sum total of the fund to be divided in proportion with their respective rates of population among the 30 states of the Union. Partial failure in her first attempt to secure this grant had only acted on her in the way of that especial tonic which she declared always set her on her feet, the tonic of opposition, and so led her, at a subsequent session of Congress, to raise the amount of her plea to a colossal sum of 12,225 acres. It is easy to write down the numerals which stand for 12,225,000 acres of land, a far harder thing is it to stretch the imagination to the point of conceiving what they really imply. They mean nearly 20,000 square miles of territory. 
they mean an area nearly three times the size of the state of Massachusetts, an area more than a third as large as England, with Wales included. Could she carry this great measure? Miss Dix felt that the work of her life in her own land would be permanently crowned. A steady income, growing in volume with the growth of population in the country, would thus be secured in perpetuity for the most wretched of the children of earth. To bring the actual situation clearly before the mind, a short explanation is here needful of a relations borne by the federal government of the United States to the disposition of the enormous areas of the public lands. The original thirteen revolutionary states stretched along the Atlantic seaboard, the states which had fought for and achieved the independence of the United States, had always maintained a claim to share severally in the vast areas of unoccupied lands lying to the westward, which they had individually ceded to the federal government. Through subsequent purchase and conquest, this area had grown to continental proportions, and as new territories were from time to time formed into states, and admitted as integral members of the Union, the same claims were fully accorded to them. Under the condition of a public treasury overflowing with revenue from sales of the public domain to settlers, the representatives in Congress had, every now and then, deemed it wise to distribute this money surplus among the several states. Further, to the new states, almost exclusively, immense tracts of land, reaching in 1845 an aggregate of 134,704,982 acres, had been granted for the purpose of rapidly developing a system of general education and of internal improvements and yet there still remained unassigned more than one thousand millions of acres of the public domain. In the main, the disposition thus far made of the public lands had been judicious, and especially had laid the foundation of an excellent school system in the newly formed and thinly populated states. The immense prizes, however, thus opened up to the schemes of private speculators, internal improvement companies, and projectors of new lines of railway had finally inflamed the cupidity of thousands. Congress was besieged for grants of land, demanded on an incredibly lavish scale. It was the sight of this pushing horde of greedy adventurers, assailing Congress through the representatives of their various states, that first inspired Miss Dix with the thought, Why cannot I too go in with this selfish, struggling throng and plead for God's poor and outcast that they shall not be forgotten? From the outset, she felt that the undertaking was to be a most formidable one. She had nothing to offer in the way of material reward, no vote to barter, 
no place to promise, no self-interested schemers to enlist in bolstering up her project, nothing to fall back on but the plea for mercy from a woman's lips. It was on June 23, 1848, that her first memorial was submitted to Congress. Already had she taken such precautionary steps and secured such influential friends among leading representatives from the various states in which her name had now become a household word that the memorial was at once referred to a select committee and 5,000 copies of it were ordered to be printed for the use of the Senate. Her prayer thus far was for a grant of five million acres for the relief and support of the indigent insane in the United States. Greatly to the advantage of the effect produced by this new memorial was it that now Miss Dix addressed herself, not to the legislature of a single state, but to the Congress of them all. She was thus enabled to focus in a single appeal the whole dire story of her investigations throughout the length and breadth of the land. Quote, Present hospital provision, she declares, relieves, if we do not include those institutions not considered remedial, less than 3,700 patients. Where are the remainder, and in what condition? More than 18,000 are unsuitably placed in private dwellings, in jails, in poorhouses, and other often most wretched habitations. I have myself seen more than 9,000 idiots, epileptics, and insane in these United States, destitute of appropriate care and protection and of this vast and miserable company, sought out in jails, in poorhouses, and in private dwellings, there have been hundreds, nay, rather thousands, bound with galling chains, bowed beneath fetters and heavy iron balls attached to drag chains, lacerated with ropes, scourged with rods, and terrified beneath storms of profane execrations and cruel blows, now subject to jibes and scorn and torturing tricks, now abandoned to the most loathsome necessities, or subject to the vilest and most outrageous violations. These are strong terms, but language fails to convey the astonishing truths. I proceed to verify this assertion, commencing with the state of Maine. Quote. Every state is then seriatim arraigned. The amount of eyewitness testimony piled up is appalling, and it strikes home all round. The member from Georgia cannot turn superiorly on the member from Rhode Island and quoting the case of Abram Simmons' cry, this, then, is the state of civilization and humanity in your benighted region. Swiftly, the member from Rhode Island could retort, go on a few pages farther and see how edifying is the example set by your enlightened state. Let us look over the shoulder of the member from Georgia, 
reading with him the following case in his own state, and then ask how far he would have felt inclined to protract the sectional controversy. Quote, it was an intensely hot day when I visited F. He was confined in a roofed pen, which enclosed an area of about eight feet by eight. The interstices between the unhewn logs admitted the scorching rays of the sun then, as they would open the way for the fierce winds and drenching rains or frosts of the later seasons. The place was wholly bare of furniture, no bench, no bed, no clothing. His food, which was of the coarsest kind, was pushed through spaces between the logs. Fed like the hogs, and no better, said a stander-by. His feet had been frozen by exposure to cold in the winter past. Upon the shapeless stumps, aided by his arms, he could raise himself against the logs of his pen. In warm weather, this wretched place was cleansed out once a week or fortnight, not so in the colder seasons. We have men called, said his sister, and they go in and tie him with ropes and throw him on the ground and throw water on him, and my husband cleans out the place. But the expedient to prevent his freezing in winter was the most strangely horrible. In the center of the pen was excavated a pit, six feet square and deep. The top was closed over securely, and into this ghastly place, entered through a trap-door, was cast the maniac, there to exist until the returning warm weather induced his caretaker to withdraw him. There, without heat, without light, without pure air, was left the pining, miserable maniac, whose piteous groans and frantic cries might move to pity the hardest heart. End quote. Fortifying, through the testimony of leading experts on insanity in America and Europe, her own insistence on the impossibility of coping with these terrible evils except by the establishment of scientifically conducted asylums, Miss Dix concluded her memorial with a few strong words of appeal. Quote, Should your sense of moral responsibility seek support and precedence for guiding present action, I may be permitted to refer to the fact of liberal grants of common national property made in the light of a wise discrimination to various institutions of learning, also to advance in the new states common school education, and to aid two seminaries of instruction for the deaf and dumb, viz. that in Hartford, Connecticut, and the school in Danville, in Kentucky, etc., but it is not for the one section of the United States that I solicit benefits, while all beside are deprived of direct advantages. I ask relief for the East and for the West, for the North and for the South. I ask for the people that which is already the property of the people, but possessions so holden 
that it is through your action alone they can be applied as now urged. I confide to you the cause and the claims of the destitute, without fear or distrust. I ask for the thirty states of the Union, five million acres of land, of the many hundreds of millions of public lands, appropriated in such a manner as shall assure the greatest benefits to all who are in circumstances of extreme necessity, and who, through the providence of God, are wards of the nation, claimants on the sympathy and care of the public, through the miseries and disqualifications brought upon them by the sorest afflictions with which humanity can be visited. Respectfully submitted, D.L.D. Washington, June 23, 1848. All omens at the start look auspicious, as finds expression in the two following letters of mystics to her cherished Philadelphia friend, Mrs. Robert Hare. Quote, Washington, D.C., July 5th, 1848. For more than three weeks I have been ill with influenza. While unable to go out, I wrote my memorial to Congress. I can only say it embodies facts. As a literary effort, it is open to severe criticism. Five thousand extra copies ordered to be printed. I expressed my wish for a select committee. They said it was unusual. I urged and finally said I must at least be suffered to propose it. I wrote out my list and carried my measure entirely. Mr. Benton, Mr. Dix, Mr. Harnigan, Mr. Bell, and Mr. Davis of Massachusetts, of course naming a Democratic majority. Mr. Benton promised me all his influence in the outset, and was to have been chairman, and to have presented the memorial, but was not well, and it passed into the hands of one of my new partisans, a man of good abilities and much influence. I really think, if Congress does not suddenly adjourn, I shall pass the bills, one asking for five million acres of the public surveyed lands for the curable and incurable indigent insane, and the other praying for two million acres for the blind and the deaf and dumb. Shall I not be happy if I get all this? End quote. To Mrs. Robert Hare, quote, Washington, July 21st, 1848. You who understand me, you who always sympathize with my anxieties and rejoice in my successes, will be glad to know that my whole committee, even the impracticable Colonel Benton, concurred in my five million acre bill, and it was read this morning in the Senate. The greatest difficulty in the Senate is already surmounted. I feel grateful beyond expression for this much. The new democratic movement in the northern states has threatened the safety of the whole measure. Colonel Benton was giving me much anxiety. I went to him. He put me off with promises to do for me all that was feasible under the circumstances. 
sir, I have not come to ask any favor for myself, not the smallest. I ask for yourself, your state, your people. Sir, you are a Democrat and profess above all others to support the interests of the people, the multitude, the poor. This is the opportunity of showing the country how far profession and practice correspond. Reject this measure. You trample on the rights of the poor. You crush them. Sustain it, and their blessings shall echo round your pillow when the angel of the last hour comes to call you to the other life of action and progress. My dear Miss Dix, I will do all I can. Then, sir, the bill and the measure are safe. I found last week my strength sinking under my anxieties. I, you know, am never sanguine and feel confidence only when a bill passes into an act and is sealed by governor or president. Alas, the great undertaking on which Miss Dix had now embarked was destined to be a long and baffling one. Her usual sagacity had been displayed in the fear she had expressed. The new democratic movement in the northern states has threatened the safety of the whole measure. This especial movement, so dreaded by her, was a rising popular agitation to arrest the hand of Congress in the free disposition it was making of the public domain and embodied a war cry sure to tell with electric effect. There still remained unsold a thousand million acres of the public lands, and the cry raised was that these vast areas must be sacredly held for the present and prospective benefit of the poor man. It was robbery of the poor to deed them away to railroad, canal, or general improvement companies, or to let them fall into the hands of greedy speculators who would swiftly advance their price. The actual settler on the spot, the settler eager to hew for himself and family a farm out of the wilderness, he was the real one to consider, and to him should these lands be sold at the fixed and unalterable price of a dollar twenty-five or a dollar fifty an acre. Lands granted to railroads and lying along their lines were sure to go up at once to two dollars and fifty cents an acre, or even more. This was robbery of the poor to enrich the powerful. Of course, it helped little to argue that, without the aid of railways and canals, the land would prove of little actual value to the settler, or further, that without the establishment of public schools, the next generation would lapse into practical barbarism. These were two recondite thoughts for popular apprehension. It needed an orator of very moderate ability to fire the public imagination with a dramatic picture of the Hyder Ali devastation wrought over boundless regions by the rapacious invasions of corporations, while it may be doubted whether the genius of Edmund Burke would have sufficed to picture with adequate effect 
the spectacle of the poor man's cart otherwise stranded up to the hubs in mud, or that of his hay and corn rotting, or his butter, milk, and eggs valueless for want of an attainable market. Land was land, wherever situated, and $2.50 an acre was a dollar more than $1.50. The power of this outcry, then, to paralyze subservient politicians was one Miss Dix fully appreciated from the moment it began to be heard. It can readily be seen, therefore, that it was a sea of stormy passions on which she had launched her five-million-acre bill. She was, so to speak, between two fires. On the one hand, the agrarian war cry which had been raised in the eastern states would be sure to frighten a large class of democratic politicians from incurring popular wrath by voting away another acre, while on the other hand, the fierce material interests of syndicates of land speculators would stimulate them to fight against the intrusion of any new measure that threatened to swell the amount of public grants they sought to confine to their own private channels. By the courtesy of Congress, a special alcove in the Capitol Library was set apart for Miss Dix's use, and there was she daily on hand to converse with members. The thought of the scenes that must have been witnessed in that quiet alcove awakens a longing that some picturesque record of them might have been preserved. Certainly, the contrast between the common experience of a senator or member of the House, as a party man beset on every hand by those fiercely urging political or material schemes, and tossed to and fro by alternate promises and threats of what would ensue if he did or did not vote in this way or that, and his experience when he found himself in the presence of this quiet, low-voiced, entreating, yet commanding woman, speaking as out of a higher realm to him to do justice, love mercy, and thus walk humbly with his God, must have been most impressive. No wonder, then, that member after member was brought over to promise her that, in the fierce struggle going on as to the disposition of lands soon to be the future seat of empire, he would never lose sight of the piteous claims of the helpless ones for whom she was pleading. To many of Miss Dix's friends in various parts of the Union— particularly to those who, as themselves superintendents of insane asylums, were thoroughly alive to the import of her action. It seemed an assured fact that her bill would speedily pass both houses of Congress and receive the signature of the President. Rejoicing in the thought that her exhausting labors would soon be over, and that, after crowning them with this magnificent success in securing full provision for ages to come for the indigent insane, she would now be able to enter on a period of rest. The question had already arisen among them 
as to the next field for the exercise of her invaluable energies. Brief at best, they knew, would be the season of recuperation to which she would consent, for in this great cause she literally lived and moved and had her being. What farther service, then, could she render it? The view taken by one large and benevolent mind will be found in the following letter from Dr. Luther V. Bell of the McLean Asylum, Somerville, Massachusetts. Quote, McLean Asylum, December 29th, 1848. Dear Madam, Your friends cannot but trust that these terribly severe labors may be nearly at a close. And so, released by the actual accomplishment or encouraging inception of your labors, how much more remains to be done, which no one but you can do. The aggregation of misery and misfortune, of which you have sounded the depths, and have done so much to alleviate, affords yet an almost boundless field of labor with the pen, if possible of more moment than any present relief through personal devotion. In a country rushing upon the crowded population, the crimes, the miseries of the old world with gigantic strides, cannot something be done which shall tell to all future time by informing the world, at least the wise and good of the world, how these monster evils can be grappled with. Is not our want of fixed principles owing to our want of facts? Now it seems to me that when you have finished the specific course laid out for yourself, if you could, in the light of all your personal experience of human suffering, take a year and sit down to the composition of a volume which should meet the emergency alluded to, you might accomplish more than in any other way. A personal narrative of your last ten years' life would contain just the needful elements, if the fair conclusions could be eliminated from it, which you alone could do. Accept, dear madam, our heartfelt regards and sincerest prayers. Yours truly, Luther V. Bell. End quote. What she should turn her mind to, after the passage of her five-million-acre bill was, however, the last thought with Miss Dix during her protracted labors throughout the congressional session of 1848-49. to 49. First must the bill be passed. Then would it be time enough to ask, what next? She understood the work of legislative affairs far more thoroughly than did her sanguine friends. Already, January 30th, 1849, had she expressed her own view of the actual situation in a letter to her brother Joseph. Quote, Specially and prominently, at this particular time, I am watching and guarding the five million bill. Through the courtesy of my friends in the Senate and House, a special committee room is assigned to my use in the Capitol. I am neither sanguine nor discouraged. I think the bill may be deferred till next session. 
A new difficulty is to be combated. The president, James K. Polk, having declared to his cabinet that he will veto all and every land bill which does not make a provisional payment to the general government. I suppose this will be gotten over by a small premium upon every acre sold. I, fortunately, am on good terms with Mrs. Polk and the President, knowing well all their family friends in Tennessee and North Carolina. The Vice President, Mr. Dallas, the intimate associate of many of my Philadelphia friends, is warmly in favor of the bell. I have decidedly declined the interposition of the state legislatures, preferring to rely on the uninstructed deliberations and acts of the two branches of Congress. The public interest is involved for all the states, and those who will vote negatively do so on constitutional grounds, imaginarily involving the federal integrity. End quote. Neither sanguine nor discouraged. In this state of mind, Miss Dix worked steadily throughout the session. Every day witnessed fresh accessions to the ranks of her supporters, and she no doubt had an actual majority of members of both houses with her. But many of them were halting and half-hearted. The agrarian cry had carried consternation into the ranks of the Democratic Party. They must wait till the popular excitement had abated, and to this end a masterly inactivity seemed the policy dictated. The bill was deferred and deferred, and finally allowed to lapse. Still Miss Dix bated no jot of faith or hope. To her, this was but the first movement in a great campaign. It had suffered check she would appear on the field again, and in more solid phalanx. A strong impression had been made, an impression so strong that but for untoward circumstances it would have resulted in decisive action. What though the field be lost, all is not lost. End of chapter 15